very much. Great, thank you so much. Well, it's wonderful uh, to be back here with you guys this morning. And for those of you who I don't know, I thought I'd just introduce myself this morning to you just by telling you a funny story. Uh, about something that happened to me once when I was traveling from London, where I live, down to Sussex. So this is just a bit of a laugh. Is this okay? I'll just tell you a funny story. Okay, so um, I'm driving my car uh, down the A23, and I'm going round one of those roundabouts in Crawley, and as I'm going round this roundabout, there's flashing blue lights in my rearview mirror. I am being pulled over by the police. Now, normally, when this happens... I have to tell you that I immediately feel guilty. I have to confess to you, this happens to me quite a lot. And normally, I feel guilty, and the reason I feel guilty is because I already know what I've done wrong. But on this particular occasion, on this one occasion, I couldn't actually think of anything that I had done wrong. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe the policeman's just bored, or uh, maybe he's seen how well I'm driving. He's going to congratulate me on my driving. Or, hang on a minute, maybe... He's seen my Christian car sticker. He's seen how well I'm driving. He's put the two together. He wants to ask me all about Jesus. And so I I was feeling pretty confident as I wound down my window. And he says, is this your vehicle, sir? I said, oh, yes, yes it is. Were you aware that you were indicating for at least 200 yards before you eventually turned right at the previous junction? And I'm thinking, you know, I hadn't realized that early indication was an offense. Um, He says, step out of the vehicle, please, sir. I said, why? He said, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? I said, oh, gosh, um, three years ago? He said, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your responses to my questions are a bit slow. I said, look, I'm just a slow kind of guy. I mean, my wife's always telling me, you know, I'm just a bit slow on the uptake. He says, look, so I blow into the bag. I hand the bag over to him. He looks at the result, and I can see he's looking at the result of the breath test. And I say to him, it's negative, isn't it? He said, yes, sir, it is negative. It must be broken. (laughs) He said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no, I haven't been taking drugs. He said, have you been taking cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And then eventually he let me go with a stern warning about the perils of early indication before junctions. But um, I've never had such enthusiastic laughter. I mean, I've been doing this for a while. I've never had anything like this before. <laughs> uh, slightly overcome. Um, anyway... The thing was about all that, it was a bit inconvenient. It did slow me down a bit, but it wasn't that bad. The reality is, what about all those times when these kind of annoying things happen, or maybe those times when it's a much worse experience? Something that's happened to us that really is a problem. You know, it's fairly easy for me to brush off the fact that I was, what, 10 minutes late for where I was going? No big deal. What about all those times when we're offended and we really do suffer. You know, we all ask this question. We ask this question because we're hurting. And I know that I am speaking right now to people who have suffered much more 
than I have. I know I'm speaking right now to some people who, even this week, even this month, you're suffering much more than I've ever suffered. And I know that your suffering is not okay. And I know that nothing that I could ever say will take away that pain. Nothing that I could ever do could take away that pain that you're in. But I can at least so so I can show some sort of appreciation for the fact that I do understand I'm speaking to people who've suffered much more than I have. If you were to ask me, Adrian, what would hurt you the most, it would probably be discovering that my wife and four kids have died in a car crash. Let's imagine that there's a great tragedy in my family tomorrow. If so, I'm sure that I would be asking, why does God allow suffering? And the person who I ask, they won't know any more than I know why tragedy has just struck the Holloway family. In these circumstances, the Bible tells us to mourn with those who mourn. I need someone to stand with me. I need someone to cry with me. I need someone to share my pain with. I need you to be there for me. As it happens, it is okay to ask God why he's allowing suffering. In the Bible, there are poems called Psalms in the Old Testament, and these Psalms ask things like, Why me, O Lord? Or, How long are you going to let this carry on, O Lord? Or, Aren't you going to do something to stop this, O Lord? Or, How long are you going to let this carry on, O Lord? Perhaps we're asking this question because for many of us, the fact of suffering makes us reluctant to trust the God of the Bible. In a nutshell, our question is something like this. Surely, if God is all good, he'd want to prevent suffering. And if he's all powerful, he'd be able to stop suffering. So seeing as suffering exists... How can an all-powerful, all-loving God exist? Five years ago, I faced the hardest situation that I've ever had to deal with. Now, don't get me wrong. I have had an easy life. But the period of suffering that myself and my wife went through was harder than everything else in the rest of my life put together. Now, I have been struggling with this question for years, but particularly since March 2010, I have been asking, why does God allow suffering? And I'd like to look at four perspectives on suffering. So, in no particular order, the first one is free will. Why does God allow suffering? Well, the question presupposes that God exists. What do we suggest that this God should do? Perhaps we think he should have gone for option A and created nothing at all. This is the ultimate low-risk option. There's no suffering, nobody gets hurt. Or perhaps we think God should have gone for option B 
and just made robotic people. These are just lifeless machines. There's no feeling, there's no pain, there's no pleasure, there's just metal. This is another no-risk option. But God chooses to go for option C, an extremely high-risk alternative, because in option C, God creates highly intelligent spiritual beings like himself, free agents who can make real choices, just like he can. But the moment he gives his creatures real freedom, he risks the possibility that they might choose to reject him. Now, why on earth would God choose option C? We wouldn't expect him to, because he risks a world of pain if people rebel against him and rebel against each other. Why does God take the risk? What is there to be gained by having free will? His answer is genuine love. Now, there is a direct link between free will, free choice, and genuine love. I discovered this for myself in the summer of 1995 when I fell in love with a marine biologist called Julia Brown. But the whole thrill of it was she chose to love me back. She could very easily have chosen not to. But she chose to love me. That is why it was exciting. Robots can't fall in love. All we are saying here is that if God is powerful enough to stop suffering and then chooses not to, there presumably must be a reason. There must be some reason why, at least in his opinion, it is worth allowing suffering. His reason is that he is love, therefore he wants there to be real love in the world, and because he wants real love, that means he wants to give us freedom of choice. Now, here, somebody should quite rightly object and say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a minute. If God is all-powerful, he could still jump in and prevent tragedies, like car accidents, for example. But if God jumped in to prevent every accident, then eventually everyone would drive as fast as possible straight down the middle of the road in the certain knowledge, I'm never going to hit anything. So we've got to at least think through the consequences of what is it that we are asking God to do. Every time that God steps in so that real choices don't have consequences, he reduces our freedom until eventually God will have to jump in every other minute and we're reduced to being robots all over again with no free will at all. But we still feel that this answer, the answer you're hearing right now, isn't good enough. And there are a number of reasons why actually this answer isn't good enough. Firstly, because, hey, we're still hurting. I am not so stupid as to think that anything that I say this morning will take away the pain. Secondly, we feel this answer isn't good enough because we still want a world without suffering. But surely, we're not saying that the only deal 
that we would ever be prepared to accept from God would be a world where we enjoy total freedom to do whatever we want in the certain knowledge of no one ever suffering any of the consequences of our actions. Because that would be like us holding a gun to God's head and saying, God, the only thing that you could ever do to stop me pulling the trigger right now would be if you right now created a round square. Folks, not even God can create a round square. Not even God can create a world where we enjoy real freedom but never suffer any of the consequences of our actions. And so much suffering is the result of human choice. We read about famine in Africa and then we turn the page of our newspaper and discover that in the American state of Nebraska there is enough corn to feed every starving child in Africa. We read about violent crimes, murderers, and atrocities. All these things are the result of human choice. So if you accept that God has given people free will, it is easier to understand how human evil follows. Yeah, but we're still hurting. What is even harder to talk about are natural disasters. An event like the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in Southeast Asia. Here, an earthquake was to blame. What about that? Now, I would not say any of what I'm about to say to somebody who'd personally suffered. Maybe they'd lost a relative in that earthquake event. But let's imagine that you or I had to write a report on why the 2004 Boxing Boxing Day tsunami happened. The bottom line of our report would be that the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami happened because our planet is made up of absolutely enormous tectonic plates that that grate against each other. But if it wasn't for plate tectonics we wouldn't be here. We would still have a water world. Without plate tectonics, the continents would never have formed. Now, I know that we all know this, but inside our Earth, we have got all this hot molten metal. It's in the form of nickel and iron. And that is what makes our planet magnetic. The Earth's magnetism is directly linked to the Earth's atmosphere, and both our magnetism and our atmosphere have to be exactly as they currently are in order for there to be any advanced organic life on the surface of our planet. But all the heat in the core of our planet is so hot and so powerful that our planet would explode unless our planet had cracks in its surface. Earthquakes are the mechanism that regulates the competing forces that I've just mentioned. Earthquakes are what enables human life to continue on the surface of our planet. Earthquakes are essential for advanced organic life. 
Scientists tell us you cannot have human life on Earth without earthquakes, or, as astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross of Toronto University puts it, if we do find advanced organic life on other planets, scientists predict those planets will have plate tectonics. Secondly, plate tectonics are crucial for the preservation of life on Earth because of the burial of material. It's plate tectonics that removes carbon dioxide and water from our atmosphere, and that is crucial because it compensates for a massive problem that we have, and that is the increasing luminosity of the sun, the fact the sun is getting brighter and brighter. Thirdly, it turns out that the level of earthquake activity that we have on Earth is fine-tuned. Fewer Or more earthquakes would throw the whole balance of our planet off course. Yeah. Maybe. But we still wonder, look, couldn't God have done something to warn those people that that tidal wave was coming? Well, in this particular case, the technology was available. There was a tsunami warning system off the west coast of the USA. The world's richest richest nations could have clubbed together and they could have given a tsunami warning system to the Southeast Asian nations. But look, there's, there's no getting away from it. There is no escape from it. Natural disasters are appalling and they leave us crying out why. And anyone who is not deeply moved by the scenes on the TV news, must have a heart of stone. Another perspective on suffering is that God sometimes works through suffering to bring about good. When I was at school, I had a a maths teacher who had been a tank commander in the Second World War called Mr. Rosser. And Mr. Rosser used to listen to my various and many complaints And every day, he would say the same thing to me. He would say, Holloway, life's tough, rough, and desperately unjust. But for some reason, people think that the Bible promises sweetness and light. It doesn't. Not in this life. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Numerous people become Christians as a result of suffering. Clearly, in these circumstances, from their point of view, the pain is worth the gain. In their opinion, 70 years of suffering is outweighed by an eternity in paradise. Secondly, it brings us to maturity. What does that mean? Well, let's imagine that God kept every teenager in the world indoors every Friday night because God wanted to protect them from the pain of hangovers and broken hearts. If God did that, there would be a global riot because people all over the world are grateful for the freedom to be able to go out at the weekend. Perhaps equal doses of freedom and suffering are needed in order for us to become mature enough to enjoy life to the full. It is interesting and surprising to me that most Christians seem to have their faith strengthened by suffering. For example, one time I picked up a copy of the Evening Standard 
uh, on the way home from work and there was a, a, a headline that said, Mother Forgives Anthony Killers. This was 10 years ago. It's the story of a woman called G. Walker whose 18-year-old son, Anthony Walker, had been standing at a bus stop in Liverpool, a black 18-year-old teenager with his white girlfriend. And two young men, two white men, had come along and chopped Anthony to death at the bus stop with an axe. Now, this appalling headline news story became doubly massive for two reasons. Number one, because one of the two men convicted of the murder was the brother of a well-known premiership football footballer. Second reason this story became doubly massive is because immediately the mother of the victim, G. Walker, a committed Christian, went on GMTV and on Radio 5 Live's phone-in and immediately forgave the murderers. Now, here's my question. G. Walker had been, and still is, a member of a church in Liverpool which is very similar to this church, King's Church Hastings, very similar. And she would have sat through a talk, maybe like this one, about the Christian response to suffering, and she would have nodded along, and she probably would have agreed with everything that was said. I mean, there's no surprise there. She's a Christian, so she would have agreed with the Christian response to suffering. Now, here's my question. When she is confronted with suffering in her own life, Her 18-year-old son is chopped to death at the bus stop with an axe, just because he's black. Why is it that G. Walker doesn't throw her hands up and say, well, now I realize that all that stuff I heard at church and all that stuff about why God loved, it doesn't work. It doesn't actually work in real life. God can't be good. God can't be powerful. Why doesn't she give up on Christianity? Why is it that suffering seems to have the opposite effect. If the fact of suffering was such a knockout argument that it actually disproves the existence of the Christian God, why don't more Christians quit? How come G. Walker says that her faith has been strengthened by what happened? Next, Christians are so often in the vanguard of the fight against suffering. I mean, this is a well-known point, that Christians are obviously often in the first wave of aid response as they fight to relieve suffering all around the world. And this, even a casual glance through the history books, will show that this has been the case for many centuries. Fourthly, we won't always see what God is up to. Let me take an example from my own childhood. When I was a child, I genuinely thought that the dentist's was a torture chamber. I mean, just think about it. I was forced to go in there against my will. It was all face masks and needles. Then they held me down in a chair, and I literally screamed with pain as a man in a white coat drilled into me. And the more I screamed, the more he seemed to be enjoying it. As far as I was concerned, he was attacking me. Now, I had no idea that the pain was actually worth the gain. Why? Because I was a child. I had a child's perspective on pain. Now, don't worry about this if this doesn't work for you. But maybe, at least some of the time... 
God's like the dentist and we're like the child. It might be that a loving God could allow some suffering because he's actually doing us a favor. Life can be like that sometimes. I know at least I have gone through things in life that looking back, I realize years later I have learned something good through it. Let me just throw in one other thought here. In recent years, a growing number of people have come to believe that evil is evidence for the existence of God. Rather than suffering and evil counting against God, there's been a whole movement of hundreds of thousands of people saying, no, the reason I stopped being an atheist is because I came to realize that if evil is real, then God must be real. What? How come? Well, it's called the moral argument for the existence of God. C.S. Lewis, for example, abandoned atheism in 1930 and later became a Christian because of this realization. Years later, Lewis described what had happened to him. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust. A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of injustice, was full of sense. Consequently, Atheism turns out to be too simple. Too simple because as an atheist, Lewis had to say that morality was just a matter of opinion. But Lewis knew that in real life, morality is not just a matter of opinion. For example, the genocide that Hitler committed against millions of Jews was absolutely morally wrong. But as an atheist, Lewis had no basis on which to agree. Because in atheism, there is no absolute right, an absolute wrong. There's no source. There's no God. So as an atheist, Lewis felt he had to say that morality was just a matter of opinion. So genocide is only wrong if the majority of people think it's wrong. So in a society that approved of genocide, and there have been such societies, genocide would be right in the opinion of most people. But Lewis really struggled with that because he had this gut feeling as an atheist, genocide is absolutely morally wrong. So Lewis began to ask himself, why am I getting so bothered by these crimes? Where does this sense of oh, moral indignation inside me come from? Could it be, he wondered, that there's a moral law which has been broken by those people committing these appalling crimes? And if there is a moral law... In each of our hearts, could it be there's a moral lawgiver, an external source of morality? Well, of course, another name for an external source of morality is God. If atheism is true, Lewis should have been able to say, ultimately, there's no moral difference between millions of ants dying and millions of humans dying. Ultimately, it's just sacks of chemicals getting punctured. That isn't wrong, that's just life. But Lewis couldn't say that. He couldn't say it and mean it. 
And that realization was the first step on his journey that led him to conclude that God does exist. Thirdly, this morning, God is not immune from suffering. God suffered too. I would not want anyone here this morning to get the impression that somehow Christians are trying to get God off the hook for suffering. Because the fact is that God put himself on the hook. God put himself on the cross. Have you ever heard the poem, The Long Silence? It goes like this. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly. Not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young girl. She ripped open her sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, she said. Beatings and death. In another group, a young man lowered his collar. What about this, he said, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched, he said. For no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. Wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering that he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in the world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered most. A Jew, someone from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. And in the center of the plain, they consulted together, and at last they were ready to present their case. Before God could be qualified to act as their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew, they said. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted, they said. Give him a work that's so hard to do that when he tries to do it, even his family will think he's out of his mind, they said. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him then face false charges, they said. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury, then let him be convicted by a cowardly judge, then let him be tortured, let him be flogged, scourged with a whip, let him be mocked, let him be spat at, then let him be totally alone and deserted, and then in extreme agony, let him die, they said. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. The Christian answer to suffering is a person. It's Jesus. 
Sometimes words aren't enough. Hey, if I am suffering, then listening to a talk this morning is not what I'm looking for. Because I have a personal problem, I need a personal answer. But as it happens, God is a someone and not a something. In that sense, when we think of the worst moments of our lives, Jesus has been there. Are you broken? Jesus was broken on the cross. Are you rejected by your friends? Jesus was rejected by his friends. Are you hated for no good reason? Jesus was hated for no good reason. And when we cry out and we complain, I can't take it anymore. We can think of Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is more than an explanation. Jesus is a person. And hey, you know what? If while I am in Hastings today, I get a text message or a mobile phone call to inform me from the police that my wife and my four kids have just died in a car crash in London, I don't know if I will ever find out in this life an adequate explanation for what just happened. But I do believe that God has left me with something that is more satisfying than an explanation. God has left me with Jesus. And maybe you're here today, and when all is said and done, something evil has happened to you. And I know that nothing that has been said today will take away the pain. It is also true that something evil happened on a hill outside Jerusalem in around 33 AD when an innocent young man called Jesus was murdered. But God brought something beautiful out of that tragedy. God allowed the suffering of his own son because he knew that through that suffering, something wonderful could be achieved. But at the time, Jesus' disciples thought it was a disaster. Their hero had been executed. All their hopes and dreams were all in tatters. They had no idea that through dying on the cross, through that suffering... Jesus was actually solving the biggest problem they had, the problem of sin. Fourthly, and finally, I'll just say one sentence on this fourth point, that God more than compensates for our suffering. All I'd like to say on this is, can any of us really begin to imagine what 70 million years of ecstasy would be like? What would it be like to live in a place forever where every single day is better than the one before? Could it be that we'd say, well, perhaps God has more than compensated for my suffering? Anyway, those are four perspectives on suffering. To which somebody replies, Adrian, okay, thanks for your talk, but you know what? It's just not good enough. As it happens, I agree with you. This isn't good enough. But it seems to me that at the cross of Christ, we can see why a God of love could allow suffering. Because firstly, it was the results of human freedom that put Jesus on the cross. There was this group of 70 blokes called the Sanhedrin. They made a decision to deliberately deny Jesus a fair trial. There was this other bloke called Pontius Pilate, and he, again, made a decision, even though he knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong, he still made a decision to have Jesus flogged and crucified. So we can see the results of human freedom in those two decisions that got Jesus killed. 
Secondly, we can see God working through suffering on the day that Jesus died. Because when Jesus was dying, it seemed that God had totally deserted Jesus, but actually, everything that happened to Jesus on that day, before, during, and even after his death, had all been planned in detail by God and predicted publicly hundreds of years before. In a group of books that today we call the Old Testament, all of these books had been finished and completed more than 400 years before Jesus' death. It was predicted, well, there are 29 different predictions. Here's just a few. Firstly, that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his friends. This is Psalm 41, verse 9. Secondly, that he would be spat upon and struck, Isaiah 50, verse 6. It was predicted the price for which Judas would betray Jesus, the 30 pieces of silver. That's Zechariah 11, verse 12. Then it's predicted in the following verse, Zechariah 11:13, what happens to the money? What happens to the 30 pieces of silver? That they'll be thrown into the house of the Lord, and then the same amount of money will be used to buy a potter's field. In Psalm 22:17, it was predicted that while Jesus was being crucified, that the soldiers at the foot of the cross would gamble and cast lots to see which of them would get Jesus' clothing. My point is, the suffering as the nails are driven into his hands, the suffering's real. The injustice is real. But it was all planned. Jesus fulfilled 29 ancient specific prophecies on the day that he died. So clearly, on that day at least, God was working through suffering. Thirdly, on the cross we see that God is not immune from suffering. He suffered too. And I think this is the most helpful thing for us. If Christianity is true, then the God who really exists can relate to what I'm going through. Christians worship a God who saw the drama of human suffering and decided to dive in and suffer too. And on the cross we see that God more than compensates for our suffering. And could it be that one day from your vantage point, when you're in heaven, that you'll look back on your life on earth and you will say, yeah, actually, with the benefit of hindsight, it was all worth it. Could it be from one one day in heaven, you'll look back through all the tears, through all the emotional pain, through the relational breakups, through the physical pain, and from your place in heaven, you too will say, yeah, taking everything into perspective, looking back over the past 70 million years I've been in heaven and those 70 or 80 years on earth, I think probably it's true. God has more than compensated for my suffering. In conclusion, folks, we don't have a God who just folds his arms, looks down upon a world of human suffering, and looks impassively on doing nothing. No, instead we have a God who saw how bad it was and dived in and suffered with us. We have a suffering God. We have a crucified God. I want to finish this morning with perhaps the most famous photo of the 20th century. During the Vietnam War in 1972, an American campaign, they were napalm bombing parts of Vietnam. And during one particular napalm bomb attack, a young girl by the name of Kim Phuc whose family had been devastated by this bombing raid, was running naked towards the photographer. And as she was running 
Her her flesh was burning. She was literally on fire. And this photograph seemed to encapsulate in one single image why war is so appalling. Here is this innocent girl. I mean, she's not a communist. And quite frankly, even if she was a communist, does she really deserve to be napalm bombed? Somehow this image of this crying, burning, suffering, naked child running terrified towards the cameraman summed up the horrors of war and the injustice of human suffering. But if you were to leave this meeting, go home, and after your Sunday lunch, type her name into Google, you would be able to watch her completely reconciled to the men who dropped the bomb. You see, despite experiencing terrible suffering, despite going through this terrible flesh-burning experience, Kim Fook did become and is today a Bible-believing Christian. She met the bombers. She even found the one guy who dropped the specific bomb, and she forgave him. And if Kim Fook were here this morning, and if she had the microphone, and if she was closing out this talk, she would say that on the day that Jesus died, she can see how that day, that day when Jesus suffered, enables her to understand that on that one day, God was working through suffering. She can see how a God of love could have allowed the suffering of his son. Because through Jesus' death, She now says it is possible for every single human being on the face of this earth and everyone who is here this morning to have their sins forgiven and to go to heaven, to go to a place where there won't be any suffering. That because of Jesus' suffering for eternity, no one in this room need ever suffer ever again. And all that was achieved through God allowing suffering. Kim Fook would tell you that because of what Jesus did, she now believes that those who trust in Christ are going to a place where we'll never be bored, a place where we'll be filled and thrilled to the max. Guys, thank you for being so patient with me. It's been great being with you. God bless you. I'll see you again next time. Thank you very much. Okay. Maybe the band could come up. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Maybe the band could come up. And just as we close, um, I wonder if you'd be kind enough right now just to pick up this feedback form that we've left uh, on each chair. There'll be a pencil or a pen somewhere nearby. And uh, in a second, we're going to ask everyone, every single person, we're going to ask you to write something. Even if you've been here every Sunday for donkey's years, we're going to ask you to write something. If this is your first Sunday, we're going to ask you to give us your honest feedback. Now, Let me just say, the man who developed the Alpha course is a 60-year-old vicar in the Church of England. And he was a bit surprised to be interviewed by Cosmopolitan magazine. Picture the scene. Cosmopolitan magazine interviewer and photographer arrives at the vicarage for the photo shoot. Vicar says, you Cosmo, me vicar. Why you come to me? And this is what the interviewer from Cosmopolitan replied. He said, the type of people who read Cosmopolitan are the sort of people who tend to have everything. And yet there's something missing. They have some kind of spiritual hunger. And so many of our readers have had their hunger satisfied by going on an Alpha course. Now, I've led 35 Alpha courses. And what's interesting about Alpha is how it appeals to such a wide cross-section of people. 
millions of people in Britain have been on Alpha. Alpha is unique in that it's recommended by all the different Christian denominations. There's nothing weird or strange about it. And the talks touch on all the big questions of life. Now, if you were to come on the whole of the upcoming King's Church Alpha course, you would be spending a total of about 20 hours of your life looking at the claims of the most famous man who ever lived. And I'm sure that probably if we live to be 70, 80, 90 years old, probably everyone here this morning would agree. If I live to be 90 years old, spending 20 hours of my life looking at the claims of Christ, the person who's had the biggest impact on the history of our world, the person who's had the biggest impact on the history of our planet, that will probably be time well spent no matter what conclusion I came to about the claims of Christ. But this morning, folks, as I finish, I'm not asking you to do the whole of the Alpha Course. But I am asking you, if I may, whether you would consider coming back here this coming Friday night in five days' time and just come to the Taster event, to the Labels event. And you know what? If you come and you think, well, okay, I don't think I'll come back. I'm not going to come back and do the Alpha Course. Well, that's just one evening of your life. But I'm bound to say that there really are hundreds of thousands of people in this country who would say, looking back, their decision to try Alpha turned out to be, in their opinion, the best decision they've ever made. I personally know, myself and my wife, Julia, we know hundreds of people who we could bring here this morning and give them the microphone, one after the other, several hundred, and they would look you in the eye and say, yeah, it's absolutely true. With the benefit of hindsight, I'd now say that the decision to try Alpha turned out to be the single best decision that I ever made. So I hope I can invite you along with integrity on that basis. If you tell us on the feedback form who you are, then we can put you on a table with somebody that you already know. And if you tell us that you're thinking of coming, we can cater for the right amount of food and the right amount of people. So I would love to say to you, we'd love to improve these events. As you can tell, this morning's been a little bit different. We'd love to know what you think. We're always trying different things. Tell us honestly what you thought. Tell us how we could have done this morning better. What would have helped? What would have made it better for you? Uh, And then if everybody writes something, then the great thing is, hey, if everybody really does join in, if there's one person on your row, maybe someone you don't know, and right now they'd love to tick that box to say, yeah, I'm interested in Alpha, I might come on Friday, they won't be the only person in your row reaching for a pen. But if none of you guys do it, they probably won't fill out the form because they'll be the only one and they won't want to do that. But if all of us join in, this only takes 60 seconds if we all join in. So why don't we do that right now? Thank you for your patience. We'll have some background music for the next 60 seconds or so and then San will come up and he'll wrap up. Thank you for your patience. It's been great being with you.